0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson.
0: On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it. Just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Velociraptor. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep.
1: Yes, that is exactly how grown men become friends. I could never be friends with them. Spinosaurus all the way for me. That was John C. Riley and Will Ferrell in a clip from 2008 Step Brothers. This week on the show, we've got our top five movie bromances, along with a review of Martin McDonough's male friendship and peril movie, The Banshees of Inisherin*. That and more. One, two, three, Triceratops. Sparsaurus. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We've got a new Martin McDonough movie to talk about, Josh. We've got our top five movie romances to get into, but I just know you're itching to tell everyone about Ticket to Paradise. Did you and Debbie have a nice date night with your favorite movie stars, George and Julia? Oh, it was lovely. We, we just
0: enjoyed basking in the glow of George Clooney and Julia Roberts' smile. Yeah, it's, you know what? It's exactly what you think it is, Adam. And if that sounds terrible to you, then stay stay away. (laughs) If it's like, oh, I could be up for that, then go, because that's what it delivers. I mean, you know, the the plot here has them as a divorced couple who they basically are forced to get together again, at least cooperate again, because their daughter is suddenly decided to get married in Bali. And this changes, you know, the plans they had for her. So they team up to kind of um, put the kibosh on that. So immediately your mind goes to You know, divorce-centric screwball comedies like His Girl Friday, The Awful Truth, Cary Grant in both of those, you know, with Rosalind Russell, Irene Dunn. Is Ticket to Paradise near either of those movies, which are screwball romances? Masterpieces. No, it's not. I mean, it's not even close, but you know, you're reminded that Clooney and Roberts are close to those performers when they have the right material. And it's just that they don't, you know, have quite as strong material. The, The major difference for me is probably this leans into sentimentality more than those two. And I think that's maybe just not the way to go. So yeah, it's not fantastic, but it does the trick. If you want to see Julia Roberts on screen again, she's up there so rarely, and I really think the movies miss her, particularly just the ease she has on screen, but then that quiet seriousness she can bring as well. It was fun seeing her in a role like this again. So, yeah, go check it out if that sounds good
1: to you. Ticket to Paradise is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and you agree or disagree with Josh, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Later in the show, we'll review Martin McDonough's already much praised Banshees of Innish with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. That's my movie star pairing, Josh. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. You know what? I kind of enjoyed them, too. Maybe even a little bit more. We'll see. They're A Bromance. I see that pop up every time I'm doing any research on this film. They seem to be great friends in real life and on screen, at least at the beginning of The Banshees of Inisharan. Let's go ahead and get into our top five that was inspired by that new one from McDonough. We're calling it Bromances. We noted last week that we've done friendship movies a long time ago here on the show. More on that in a second. We've also done Female Friendship movies, but we've never focused on male friendships. As usual, I'm sure we both have some criteria or at least a criterion. And we probably had a whole lot of movies that we deemed ineligible. Should I just launch into some of those titles, Josh, or do you have a few as well?
0: Um, Well, I mean, there's a lot of them in the Pantheon. Sam kind of went through and listed here. And yeah, I don't know what this says about the Pantheon, but the vast majority could maybe be described as a bromance if you stretch things just a little bit.
1: Yeah. Sam had a few that I thought were maybe a little bit too much of a stretch ones that I definitely thought about. Well, Luke and Han. From some Star Wars movies. How about Ving Rames and Clooney in Soderbergh's Out of Sight? Of course, The Big Lebowski counts. You could probably make a case for Goodfellas with either Pesci, De Niro, Ray Liotta, some combination of those guys, maybe even Woodward and Bernstein from All the President's Men. And then, of course, Midnight Run, Charles Grodin and De Niro again. De Niro was an option for me. A lot, as I thought about this list, and again, that's maybe just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more in the pantheon you could probably make a case for.
0: Yeah, I'm not. Did you mention um, the Big Lebowski? That one I saw yeah, come I up did. a lot. Yep, from listeners on social media. And another one I don't think you mentioned, but was a, a common choice: Brody and Hooper in Jaws. Mm-hmm. That I think absolutely qualifies and would be a great option, except it's in the pantheon, so we couldn't go for it.
1: Some other titles that. I had to rule out anyway. I mentioned that long ago on the show, this was a top five friendship movies, and it's episode 153, March 2007. At this point in time, not available, Josh, to our Film Spotting family members who have archive access, but coming soon, those first 300 episodes. Again, this is episode 153, so keep an eye out for that. I had, at that time, even though it was... Open to any type of friendship, a very male-centric list, and so did Sam. I'll just read my picks. I had the Shawshank Redemption, actually, at number one. Sure. I had Goodwill Hunting. I had a tie at number three. I have no idea how I justified these two picks together, but with Nail and I and E2 Mama Tambien. Hmm. Number four, Stand By Me, and then finally deviating a little bit from the norm, I had Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures as my number five. I like that one, yeah. Those movies are all out, including the movie that I titled that list after. It was my Jewels and Jim memorial Mm. list. What movies then did you consider, and how did you form your list?
0: Yeah, didn't need to think too long about criteria or definitions here. I think the term bromance is pretty self-explanatory. I wanted it to be the central relationship of the movie. There are probably a lot of subplots maybe that could be described as a bromance, and maybe a lot of times those are memorable because they might be comedic supporting parts or turns. But I did want it to be you know, if not the absolute focus of the movie, one of the main relationships being explored. And then the other thing that I thought was important is that at some point in the narrative, this pair would need to be challenged in some way. They would need to gather, get over some sort of, I don't know, maybe a rift in some cases, maybe an outside threat in other cases, but basically overcome a challenge together. Sort of sort of when we disagreed, Adam, about three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri and Mm -hmm. recovered from that. That's kind of what I was thinking for this (laughs) list.
1: Fair enough. I ruled out any movie that was about groups of friends. Yes. Stand by me would have been ineligible and at least one other notable title that I'll throw in during honorable mentions. I also excluded mentor protege relationship. So a couple more notable titles that we'll probably squeeze in at some point for me. I did think Josh about how sharing anything that's truly intimate or exposes you in a vulnerable way is tough no matter what gender you are or who you're communicating to. But I do think it's reasonable to suggest that a number of men find it hard to express their feelings. Think about Banshees of Innisharen and Gleason's character, Colum, When he decides he's no longer going to be friends with Colin Farrell's character, he doesn't sit him down and have a heart-to-heart with him and explain it to him. He just decides to ignore him, right? Yeah. I just yesterday had a longtime friend who I know was adopted, but it's something we've never really talked about. He told me something over text and added, I thought you should know that for some reason. So he felt the need to qualify, which is totally fine. But I think that example even speaks to that difficulty. It maybe felt a little odd to him to tell me something, even though we've been friends for over 20 years, that was that personal and he kind of had to throw in that disclaimer. So for me, it was thinking about a range of ways that male love is expressed.
0: Okay. I like it. Let's hear your number five at number five. It's a pick Adam that I've tried to get on a top five list for probably more than 10 years, just never had the right opportunity or maybe never had the guts because it's hardly cinephile fair, but now's the time Bromance is the topic. I need to give 2004's Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle its due. I think it's also fair to say a good bromance usually involves food of some sort, gathering around food. And that's definitely the case here for the best friends played by John Cho and Cal Penn, who suffer this deranged night of misadventures in pursuit of the title Burgers, which, spoilers, are eventually their reward. I swear I wasn't smoking anything when I gave this a glowing review when it first came out. Watching the clips again, they're funny. I still smiled and laughed, but I I was probably in a particularly good mood that day to like it as much as I did. What I do think definitely holds up, and I remember appreciating this at the time as well, is the way the movie leans into not just the star's comic talents and the camaraderie they share, but the fact that Cho is Korean-American and Penn is... Indian American. So that's something that, to your point, these two don't directly talk about um, in the film or discuss, but so many of the gags revolve around the discrimination that Harold and Kumar have to face because of this and the way they can both understand and empathize with each other. Not completely. A lot of the jokes also are because You know, Harold, as an Asian-American experiences, as a Korean-American experiences, very different sort of discrimination than Kumar does as an Indian-American. So they recognize those nuances. But still, a lot of the stuff they get into is because of discrimination. Some of it's pretty dangerous, especially when they have a few run-ins with the cops. So, yeah, Harold and Kumar, a socially conscious stoner comedy. It actually works that way and pretty fun as a bromance, too. So that's my number five, Harold And Kumar go to White Castle.
1: Dude, we can stay here, get arrested, and end our hopes of ever going to White Castle. But we can take that hang glider and make our leap towards freedom. Leave the decision up to you. I hate you, Kumar. A movie I have yet to catch up with in my lifetime, Josh. I'm shocked. I don't know how I should feel about that, or I should say, how badly I should feel about it. With you know Renoir's Grand Illusion up there is my number one most I mean, embarrassing blind spot. Where where does Harold and Kumar fall? I think you just I think you just named a really good double feature for yourself uh-huh. some night. <laughs> All right, my number five duo comes from a movie that I was considering, and then a listener wrote in. And put it over the top for me. And it certainly ties back to the theme for my picks here in a really nice way. I'm going to let the professor, longtime listener, Nathaniel Myers, do the honors with this pick. He says, there's been a lot of talk on the show in recent weeks about most quotable films and best comedies of the recent past. And yet, as your top five bromances approaches, I fear one all-time quotable comedy of the recent past will fail to be properly appreciated, namely Superbad. If I can recall all the way back to 2007, I believe your review was mixed to middling and there hasn't been much talk of the film since. Okay, I do need to jump in here real quick and say, the professor's right on one count. There hasn't been much talk of the film since. I don't know that Superbad has come up in really any context since 2007 here on the show, but I went back and checked. I knew I was positive on it. Maddie and I both at the time in 2007 gave it four out of five stars and a very positive review nathaniel continues but pound for pound i truly think super is one of the great comedies of the 21st century maybe the best of the 2000s and what it absolutely is is one of the great bromances of all time the masterstroke of the film in this particular regard is the way it leans into many of the tropes of a raunchy teen sex comedy most notably by featuring a pair of foul-mouthed teenagers in pursuit of getting drunk and getting laid and undermines it at almost every point, showing all the ways our two main characters, Seth and Evan, fail to correspond with the more misogynistic characters of other teen sex comedies. It all culminates in a moment of drunken confession between the two, where, with their guard down, huddled next to each other in sleeping bags, they admit their love for each other. I love you. I love you, man. I love you. I love you. I'm not even embarrassed to say it. I just, I, I love you. I'm not embarrassed. Love you. I love you. It's like, why don't we say that every day? Why can't we say it more often? I just love you. I just want to go to the rooftops and scream, I love my best friend Evan. We should go up on my roof. The film's only real misstep comes in its final minutes when it pairs Seth and Evan off with the two women they've been pursuing over the course of the film as if to suggest that the bromance is just the necessary step to enter into heteronormative adulthood. Side note, the corrective to this came two years later in the otherwise inferior I Love You Man, which affirms that even in adulthood one needs a good bromance. But everyone who loves the film knows the climax really comes in that moment on the floor in their sleeping bags. Theirs is the central love story at the heart of this sweet and hilarious film. I hope beyond hope one of you will find a way to include this great film on your list. If you need any more convincing, I'll end with this. I feel strongly it's a romance worthy of two guys who like to talk film and wax nostalgic about their favorite rock concerts featuring 80s bands like Rush and Depeche Mode. (laughs) I'm not sure who he's talking to there, Josh. No, no, not at all. As the professor so eloquently explained, the love here, in this case, is actually expressed. It's stated between the two men, the two young men in this case. Yes, they might be drunk, but that doesn't make it any less truthful. And it has been a long time since I've seen the movie, but I don't recall there being any particular regret over the expression of that love. They definitely mean it. And as I went back and looked at my notes from that 2007 review, I brought up the fact that it made me very nostalgic for high school, but not in the sense that, I was thinking back on all the great parties or what an amazing time I had. The thing I wished I could go back and replicate the thing I think we do lose as men as we get older for a variety of reasons is that kind of really close intimate bond you can have with another guy where you are sharing sleeping bags right next to each other from grade school all the way through high school. I noted then, I'll note it again now because he might be listening. My buddy Jason was my best friend in high school who I spent so much time with. He called my parents mom and dad and he might've slept at my house more often than he slept at his. Again, I think that's something we do miss out on as we get older. Episode 173 from the Film Spotting Archive, also part of volume one, if you want to go back and listen to that, will be available soon.
0: Have not seen Super Bad since it came out. At the time, I was probably mixed to negative, but that camaraderie between those two was by far the highlight. And in that scene, I love—I mean, the way the performances are handled are great and the dialogue is perfect. But I love the touch you highlighted, the sleeping bags, for yeah. exactly that reason— probably i mean maybe but probably at the age they're at they've grown past the sleeping yes. bag stage right they they just crash on a couch or whatever but the way the use of that prop and the framing of it how they're both snuggled into it it does partly in addition to the beer allow them to get back to that younger more vulnerable mm-hmm. stage and share it now even though you know they're they're teenagers so it is a great scene my number 4 The pair is Cookie and King Lou from First Cow. So speaking of food, in Oregon of the early 1800s, they didn't have White Castles, but they did have Oily Cakes. In Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, Oily Cakes are the product at the heart of this business partnership between John McGarrow's Cookie, a frontier chef for fur trappers, and Orion Lee's King Lou, a Chinese traveler who has a talent for capitalism. When King Lou invites Cookie to live in his hut with him in the woods, then this deeper friendship begins to develop, one in which the two men comfortably fall into these set domestic roles. Cookie prepares the food, decorates the place with flowers. King Lou is the business manager for their shared income and expenses. In fact, they hatch their business plan during a quiet night together in this hut over a crackling fire while tending to domestic tasks.
1: What else do you need to make a biscuits, Cookie? Uh, flour. Some sugar. Salt. Baking soda. How long does it take to milk a cow? Not long. Make much noise?
0: No. Can cows give milk at night?
1: As long as she wasn't milked after dinner.
0: Cookie is at first reluctant because their plan relies on stealing this milk at night from the commander of the nearby military fort. The only way for these two to scrape together their own livelihood, though, is to steal. You get the sense. Now, of course, it's on a smaller scale than all the plundering we see going on by the manifest destiny of the military and other larger forces in this region. Of course, they're stealing comes with risks, which is what threatens their relationship and becomes the thing they may or may not overcome as the movie goes on. Male friendship, not a new thing for Kelly Reichert to explore. It was at the root of her breakout film, at least her breakout film at Indie Circles, 2006's Old Joy, which follows two longtime friends on a camping trip. That movie and First Cow Both, I think they are acutely attentive to the nuances of male friendship, especially the way silence can speak volumes in both positive and negative ways. I think that Cookie and King Lou, they count more as a bromance to me than than the characters in Old Joy. So that's why First Cow is
1: on my list. You know, I love that film as much as you do. I love both of those performances. I think I had John Majaro's performance as my number one of that year, or certainly very high on my list. And you're right, this is about a time and place where the environment and the people to a large extent, are unforgiving of sensitive souls. (laughs) And early on in that film, you really do get the sense that everyone is on their own and they just got to look out for themselves and anybody extending any type of sympathy or cooperation, wanting to actually collaborate or be helpful in some way is almost shocking. And so that that relationship is even more heightened because of the. The world that Kelly Reichert gives us in First Cow. My number four movie bromance is going off the beaten path just a little bit. But again, I wanted to really explore a range of ways that men express their feelings for each other. And some bromances, Josh, I think start out as, and sometimes they continue to be Rivalries more than actual friendships. And that rivalry is rooted in a mutual respect and admiration. My duo is from Michael Mann's Heat. It is Robert De Niro as Neil McCauley and Al Pacino as Vincent Hanna. After the opening heist scene where we watch McCauley and his crew and a heist gone wrong we see the cops arrive on the scene and sergeant drucker says to hannah you recognize the mo and he says mo is that they're good later when they're kind of on their trail a little bit and they go out to a site they follow them out to a site that word good very notably comes up again you want to know what they're looking at I mean, is this guy something or is he something? This
0: crew is good. You know what they're looking at?
1: What? Us. So I'm not going to suggest this is love, but this is how, in this world, in this environment, deep appreciation is expressed with that that devilish smile of recognition on Pacino's face, that laugh, Vincent Hanna is impressed with Neil Macaulay. And then the smile that Macaulay gets on his face as he's taking photos of them. This is the very distanced foreplay between these two men that leads to, of course, the scene, the sit-down, one of the most rewatchable conversations in movie history. You know, we're sitting here.
0: You and I like a couple of regular fellas, You do what you do, I do what I got to do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I got to put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're going to turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in and I got to put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get my way.
1: Neither of these guys are cut out for barbecues and ball games, as Macaulay jokes about at one point in that scene. But there's a world in which Neil and Vincent are best friends because they're cut from the exact same cloth. And I'd probably pay to see that movie too, but it wouldn't be as good as Heat, where each of these men needs the other to bring out the best in them.
0: Yeah, thinking back on this this film and then Pacino and De Niro, especially as you describe them as rivals, is there is there sort of a, a Beatles or Stones thing going on here with us as viewers? Like, Are you Maybe. either a Pacino person or a de niro person Uh, in that scene it's kind of forcing you to choose maybe heat as a whole is forcing you to choose um i don't i don't know do you have an instinct if you had to
1: if i had to choose yeah if you had to say you're a pacino person or you're a de niro person like a beatles or stones that's a good question and then an even better offshoot question would be in this scenario, which one of the two is the Beatles and which one's the Stones? And I don't have an answer to that one. Wow, yeah. I don't have an answer to that one (laughs) either, Josh. I mean, De Niro is certainly, well, De Niro's gotta be the Stones, right? Maybe because I'm thinking about Jumping Jack Flash right now from Mean Streets in the bar, Mm -hmm. but also I'm thinking about him as someone who has made, I feel like more movies than Pacino and certainly balanced out some of the art house stuff and the iconic '70s cinema, but also doing more populist fare that Pacino. I feel like didn't dabble in quite as much. Yeah, you know. So maybe Pacino's the Beatles in this scenario. I'm going to have to process this more. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to drop that, that on you. We'll, answer.
0: We'll return to this at some point. I'm sure. All right. My number three pick: Chance and Dude from Rio Bravo, a beloved film spotting movie by you, Adam, by Sam, and finally. By me in 2020, when we celebrated the show's 15th anniversary with a screening and then we did a live show after the movie. This is an ensemble movie, so it's a little bit stretching what I said about at the top, how I wanted it to be about this central relationship. But I do think the strongest bond among the characters in Rio Bravo is between John Wayne's Sheriff John T. Chance and Dean Martin's dude, a recovering alcoholic who is one of the few men willing to stand up alongside Chance against a bunch of hired thugs. When I wrote about Rio Bravo, I compared it to other Howard Hawks films like Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday because it is built around a series of prickly relationships, but also this one. This dynamic between Chance and and Dude It's tart but it's also tender you've got Wayne exuding this this gruff love and you've got Martin hitting these surprising notes of regret so I wrote the contours explored here are emotional those of a man lamenting the demise and hoping for the rise of his alcoholic friend now of course this being John Wayne the relationship does turn on some very tough love especially after dude begins to lose his nerve I said where are you going you've got no use for a man you can't depend on one bad night and I'm done for. No old man takes a pot shot at me and I'm finished. I tried and I tried hard. Where'd he get me? Look at me. I got him so bad. What can a man do with hands like that? Through. I quit,
1: John.
0: Quit. All right, quit. Nobody's trying to stop you. If you want to quit, quit. Go on back to the bottle. Get drunk. One thing, though. Somebody throws a dollar in a spittoon. Don't expect me to do something about it. Just get on on your knees and go after it. I knew a classic Western was probably going to show up on this bromance list. And for me, that's Rio Bravo.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to get at least one more Western here later on the list. All I can say is you're talking about a film that could be in contention for my top 10 favorite films of all time. So I can't wait to hear what you've got at one and two. All right, I'll get to it. (laughs) (laughs) My number three, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a tweet from Edgar Wright that instantly saddened me. Despite the fact that it was about the passing of a man, I only knew from his appearance in a documentary that I saw over 20 years ago. But thus is the power of Chris Smith's American movie and the power of Mike Shank and his unwavering, indefatigable support of his aspiring filmmaker friend, Mark Borchardt. So Mike and Mark from American movie are my number three. We watch them struggle through the making of Borchert's 16 millimeter horror short Coven, a project that he is revived with the hope that it will finance the horror feature. He really wants to make his real ambitious project Northwestern. This is what Edgar Wright said. RIP Mike Shank the sweet, funny soul at the heart of the extraordinary Doc American movie. Me, Simon, and Nick were obsessed with it, and since they included Mike's home number on the DVD extras, we called him from London one night. If you've never seen it, please do immediately. I can certainly echo that. Mike Shank was 53 years old, did just pass away here, I think, October 13th. American Movie was such an important film for me personally, as its release corresponded with my time as a film student. I can't say I had any challenges exactly like the ones we see during the making of Coven, but I was out there with 16 millimeter and calling on friends and favors and trying to shoot things on the sly and certainly not having much in the way of a budget. So I related to it. And what was inspiring more than anything was the perseverance. It was the determination to finish this movie. And that simply doesn't happen without Mike's friendship. How does Mike express his love for Mark? There's a lot of ways we see in the movie. And there's a really good article that I'll link to in our show notes from Collider that was published shortly after Mike Schenk passed that lays it all out beautifully. The way he supports his friend. That's how he says, I love you. His contagious optimism, standing by him no matter what, when Others have left the production. This piece says they flaked out or proven to be generally undependable. Shank is always there. And he is always happy to be there. There's this great scene that the Collider piece mentions that's really memorable on Thanksgiving Day. And it's the aftermath of it where they've spent the day together and they're talking about what they're thankful for. I don't know. Some things, I guess, I don't really know. It's like I'm thankful that I won 50 bucks. You know, the other day, thankful that I want to eat, <coughs> eat a $10
0: today. Thankful for all the food that I've been eating, you know, around Thanksgiving time. He came over and he put a smile on my face. And I don't think I, I didn't, I didn't even want to wake up tomorrow morning, man. I had nothing to look forward to. I'm thankful that Mike came over. And he put a smile on my face, talking to.
1: I like what the writer of that collider piece says. When the camera cuts back to Mike, he's grinning from ear to ear. It's like giving Mark joy is the kind of invaluable gift that makes a person's weak. He's happy to make Mark happy. Our friend Dana Stevens quote tweeted Edgar Wright and said, no one who's seen American movie could forget the spacey, soulful, there's that word again, endlessly loyal Mike Shank. Here's to making art with your friends, coven forever. And Mark Duplass said, RIP Mike Shank, watch him in American movie and learn how to be a good friend. Certainly seems like a good pick for this list, doesn't it, Josh? And finally, he isn't or he wasn't in his life, according to another tweet I saw, someone who was just a great friend to Mark Borchardt. He was there for a lot of other people. You talked about the dude and dealing with alcoholism in Rio Bravo. This is something that he battled, was sober for the past 20-plus years of his life. It had been only a year and a half or so at the point we see him in American Movie. His friend Mark is dealing with it over the course of the movie. And according to the Twitter handle Death by DVD... Beyond American Movie, Mike Shank devoted his life to those struggling with addiction and helped a plethora of people with their recovery, recently celebrating his 27th year sober. Mike was much more than just a character. Rest in peace.
0: That's not a surprise based on what you see on screen at all. Yeah, this I love this pick. It's also an example, you know, in the way you talked about setting up your list, how it can be difficult, perhaps for men in particular, to be open about how they're feeling You've sensed that Mike had that openness, you know, and expressed it maybe in different ways, but mm-hmm. never was shy about the, the strength of their bond or the
1: affection he felt. You saw that on screen as well. So I, yeah. I really love this pick. But someone who mostly, I think, exhibited it through action. He showed it. Right. He constantly showed it. He lived it in every moment of his life, at least every moment we see on screen with him and Mark.
0: We've got more bromances ahead, and after I go pour myself a Guinness, a review of The Banshees of Inisharan, plus a new film spotting poll considering nothing less than the greatest movies of all time. Stay with us.
1: I know what you are, cat You're a hell maiden. But it has to be our secret. That's how I can protect you. Protect me from
0: what? Your demons.
1: That's from the trailer for Wendell and Wild, a new stop-motion feature from Henry Selleck, the filmmaker behind Coraline, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Monkey Bone, co-written by Selleck and Jordan Peele, featuring the voices of Peele, and Keegan Michael Key as two demon brothers who enlist the aid of a young girl to bring them into the land of the living. Wendell and Wilde comes to Netflix this weekend. You are, Josh, in the parlance of our time, a Selick Stan. Is that fair to say? Sure. I'm still not quite sure how that works, but yeah, whatever. It was, we can say this for sure, among your most anticipated titles of the fall. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going to talk about Wendell and Wilde next week on the show. We were planning initially to make next week a review of palooza with thoughts on triangle of sadness and the much hyped indie drama after sun but after sun has been pushed back a couple of weeks here in chicago so now not only are we going to talk about wendell and wild a bit but our producer sam is trying to convince us to pair that with our top five stop motion sequences
0: yeah i don't need much convincing but Somebody else might. We'll see what happens here.
1: Well, it it just might have to be a joint list because, in fairness, this is not a domain I feel like I have much expertise in.
0: I could be talked into a joint list, yeah. If it's a way to to give stop motion some attention, I'd be fully on board with that. And I think we've both seen Triangle of Sadness, right? We have. Okay, so we'll we'll have a little talk about that. We will, as well.
1: Okay. We'll settle on that full plan for next week, though it seems like we're pretty close. And you can follow us on social media for updates at Larson on Film or at FilmSpotting. You can also check out the episodes page at FilmSpotting.net. Josh, Scottish actor Robbie Coltrane passed away back on the 14th, 72 years old. Didn't get a chance to mention it on last week's show, but one of those Characters, one of those actors you were always happy to see show up on screen. Of course, most people or people of a certain age will think of him as Hagrid in the Harry Potter series. I had somehow forgotten that he was Falstaff in my beloved Henry V from Kenneth Branagh.
0: Yeah, he was also Valentin Zukovsky in a couple of Pierce Brosnan Bond movies, showed up in Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa, Ryan Johnson's Brothers Bloom, and Soderbergh's Oceans 12. Of course, A lot of the tributes anchored around his performance as Hagrid, which is one of those, you know, I think you can't you could probably say this for a lot of Harry Potter characters, but you can't get Hagrid wrong. And you could by playing him too buffoonish or, you know, too loud and boisterous. And I think Coltrane just managed to thread that needle perfectly while capturing the comedic qualities and still making you know, a, a term that came up when we were talking about our bromances, a soulfulness to Hagrid as well, which I think was crucial to the character. We also wanted to give a heads up about Trivia Spotting. It's just around the corner. Tickets are on sale. This is going to be Trivia Spotting 23 on Friday, November fourth. So, yeah, that's next week, 7.30 p.m. Central Time. We usually go about two and a half hours under the guidance of brilliant quizmaster Thomas Todd. Tickets open to the public, so anyone can join us. Newcomers are welcome. It is not as intimidating as you might think. Adam and I take most of the falls and the face plants. Um, If you're on a team, you don't ever have to be on camera, you know, claiming you know the answer at all. You're just part of a team that compiles a list of answers And it's a lot of fun. So if you want to join us for this, you can get your Trivia Spotting
1: tickets and more information at filmspotting.net. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their internal affairs pairing. Park Chanuk's beautiful decision to leave with David Lean's beautiful brief encounter. Looking at cinemas present via its past, that's The Next Picture Show, hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and more info is available at nextpictureshow.net.
0: Here we are. Wow. Now, I've already had too much to drink, and I'm feeling sentimental, but I'm going to say something anyway, which nobody wants to admit, but I think it's probably true. We beat them. We beat those farmers. And now we're triumphantly eating their roasted chicken, their sizzling duck, their succulent turkey, their foie gras. where the
1: boys go? There you have it. Proof that Fantastic Mr. Fox is a Thanksgiving movie, Josh. What more do people need? <laughs> Time for some poll results. A couple of weeks ago, we asked you to choose one fall slash winter stop motion animated film. The loser would not go into the incinerator, but would go instead into an impenetrable vault. Every year from October through December, you're sitting around with the family. You can only watch one. And it's either Henry Selick's The Nightmare Before Christmas or it's Wes Anderson's The Fantastic Mr. Fox. How did it come out, Josh?
0: Mr. Fox, he's burrowed his way into viewers' hearts and claims the crown here. Fifty-three percent of the
1: vote to 47 percent. So awfully, awfully close. Andrea Weaver writes in, the challenge with this poll lies solely in the wording of the question. If we have been asked to pick our favorite of the two, I would have certainly picked Fantastic Mr. Fox. You can't beat the beauty of the animation, the lovely story, and the adorable little animals that outwit humans for an hour and 30 minutes. However, that is not the decision we face. So out of the goodness of my heart, I chose The Nightmare Before Christmas. Why? Because I care about Jack Skellington. And it makes zero sense to watch this movie at any other time but October through December. The entire plot is based chronologically between Halloween in Christmas. Both are great movies, but we would be doing stop motion animation as a whole a great disservice if we locked up The Nightmare Before Christmas during its prime time. That's like telling the world to not play Mariah Carey at Christmas is just something you don't do. It sounds like Andrea found a technicality to come up with an easy answer, which I'm all in favor of, Josh. And it sounds like what she's really saying is, Sam, this is a deeply flawed film spotting poll. And she just totally upended my logic, which I
0: had previously been happy with, that we have a lot of Halloween movies. We have a lot of Christmas movies. Who needs one that combines them? Now, Andrea is pointing out this is perhaps the only one that combines them. So we must have it. Too late for me to change my vote, unfortunately. One last comment here from Jeff Clark, who just shares this. Streep, Clooney, whackbat. Need I say more?
1: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you to everybody who voted in that poll question. Our new poll looks ahead to the once-a-decade publication of Sight & Sound Magazine's 100 Greatest Films of All Time. Sight & Sound has published the list every 10 years since 1952. The new list will be revealed at the end of November. We don't have an exact date yet, along with the publication of the December-January issue of the MAG The list is the result of a wide-ranging poll of critics across the globe who are each invited to submit a top 10 list. I think they probably still do the critics list and a director's list. And usually we don't express saltiness here on the show, Josh, but I'm just going to be honest and say it. I'm salty. I thought maybe 10 years later that. We might get asked to submit a ballot, and instead I'm just going to have to keep it on my top five list of movie-related dreams Mm. that I hope someday come true. There you go.
0: Yeah, I I don't know if podcasts have reached that level of respectability yet, though I was honored, very honored, chatting with Michael Phillips, our friend from the Chicago Tribune, before a screening just this week. And uh, this came up, the Sight and Sound List, and and he earnestly looked at me and said,
1: do you vote? (laughs) So, no, Michael. No. Yeah. I do not vote. <laughs> Unfortunately, we were not asked, but we are once again planning some sight and sound related content for the show closer to the publication. We're going to give you the lists nobody asked for, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam has come up with a good poll question that did inspire a lot of responses on Twitter, a semi-viral tweet, maybe even a viral tweet from our producer, Sam. He is looking at films made between 2012 and 2022. So obviously the past 10 years, what film made in that span should be on the sight and sound top 100 films of all time. We're giving you four options. These aren't necessarily our four favorites from the last decade, They're not necessarily the most critically acclaimed, though I think you can make a case in both regards, but these are four films that seem to us, I don't know, you didn't weigh in on Slack, but to myself and Sam, these felt like the four likeliest candidates to appear on the list if somehow a movie from the last 10 years did make it, Josh, those movies are.
0: Yeah, like what we've got here, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. And Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I think we're still going to do other as an option for this yeah. poll as well.
1: Do you have one that you would choose oh. in response to this poll? The one you think. Out of these four. Out of these four. Yeah. Um, didn't
0: we do, we did some ranking of the top movies of the 2010s at some point did we do that mm-hmm. or was it of this century at any rate i know that mad max fury road i believe was on my list for that and i think moonlight might have been as well um i'm going to go with mad max fury road out of this bunch you know i don't feel like yeah it's an easy decision but that feels like the right one
1: I don't know why I asked you because now I have to answer and I'd have to look back at that list as well. I think Mad Max Fury Road was on my list of the best of the decade. I'm pretty sure Parasite was as well, though. Josh and Portrait of a Lady on Fire would have been in the running. I like Moonlight, but definitely would be fourth for me among these options. It's between Fury Road and Parasite. I think those two films are going to be all timers. Maybe it's too soon now to make the list, but I think you'll see both of them on it at some point down the road. If I had to flip a coin, I'll go with Fury Road as well, Josh. For some context, what inspired this question from Sam, he did a little digging and found that back in 2012 when that list was published, zero films from that time period made the list. Now, three films from earlier in the 2000s did make the top 100 in 2012. Those were In the Mood for Love, Mulholland Drive, which is 2001, and Edward Yang's Yi Yi. But Recency bias is apparently not a thing when it comes to assessing the 100 greatest films of all time.
0: Yeah, sure. It's probably the opposite, right? There, there's a fear of recency, I think, is probably what comes into a lot of voters' minds, which is understandable when you're making the claim that a movie is one of the greatest of all time. You feel like there's a sense that it has to prove that longevity for a
1: while before earning that designation. In a Twitter version of the poll that Sam posted earlier this week, it was Parasite and Fury Road duking it out for the lead. Moonlight and Portrait were battling for a distant second. Sam offered voters some extra credit with the poll. He asked them to remove a title from the current top 100 list before adding a new one. Suggested cuts to make room for Fury Road, Parasite, Moonlight and Portrait of Lady on Fire included. Wow. Taking off David Lynch's blue velvet. I don't like that. Taking off. Billy Wilder, some like it hot. Don't you dare. Don't like that either. D.W. Griffiths Intolerance, I have to confess, a blind spot for me. Me too. Tekken Pa's Wild Bunch, Raging Bull, those are non-starters. La Tay, still need to see Touch of Evil and Tarkovsky's Stalker, where other films people were looking to take off, Josh.
0: Yeah, I, you know, intolerance I could see um, as sort of the Separating art and artist and, you know, even their previous work being a question is something that's more at the forefront, I would say, of voters' minds probably now than it has been in years past. Um, the other ones, yeah, pretty surprising unless they feel like, you know, in the case of Touch of Evil, you've got to spread it around a little bit. And Wells being always placing so high with Citizen Kane, maybe you make room for another filmmaker by taking Touch of Evil out.
1: I think that Blue Velvet and Raging Bull both made my unofficial sight and sound list back in 2012 when we did that on the show with Michael Phillips. So They're coming for you. Yeah, definitely not going to come out of my top 100, though we'll see what happens with my top 10. Actually, I'm a little bit relieved that we didn't get asked, Josh, because the pressure. I already feel enough pressure to do the top 10 on the show. Narrowing down your top 10 favorite films Ever is absurd, and maybe I couldn't handle actually submitting something that I, I knew was going to be out there forever. The podcast is, but, you know, we're just making this up as we go along every week anyway.
0: Yeah, something official like that, I think you would have been physically, emotionally, and intellectually paralyzed. <laughs> Thank you.
1: You can vote in our current poll and leave a comment, including your picks for cuts, at filmspotting.net. Harlem, Sonny Larry. Didn't you and he used to be the best of friends? We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. When you didn't do anything to me, I just don't like you no more. You did like me yesterday. Our top two movie bromances coming up here in a moment. But first, we did want to spend a few minutes on The Banshees of Inna Sharon, writer-director Martin McDonough's follow-up to The Divisive, but Oscar-winning, Josh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Mm. We we split on that one. I think that's an understatement. Fair to say. McDonough's latest reunites Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who starred in In Bruges, McDonough's 2010 feature debut. The new one is set in a small Irish village, it has Farrell and Gleason as longtime friends. Gleason's character, however, has decided suddenly that they are no longer friends. We talked about Park Chan-wook's decision to leave last week, Josh, an acclaimed filmmaker there whose work you've mostly liked, but whose latest was your favorite. Is this the redemption of Martin McDonough for you, Josh? The Banshees of Inisherin coming off three billboards?
0: I mean, I, I still think it's best if we just leave three billboards out of this, but even if I wanted to be stubborn, Adam, and pretend like I was unmoved by Banshees, I couldn't get away with it because I sat right next to you for this yes. screening at the Chicago I International know Film Festival. you thought this was a delight. And you heard me <laughs> yes. laughing probably throughout the first two thirds of this film, which is is so enjoyable even though it's tinged with hints of darkness from the beginning i don't think it comes out of nowhere the place where this movie eventually ends up but man the conversations here and just the writing is so on point with these characters and the performances so i want to give mcdonough his His due, his just due for what he's managed here. I I do think, again, we don't need to get into it. I think it's distinct from three billboards in crucial ways. But I want to start with a question and ask you, is it possible that Colin Farrell, who was on my list of best performances of the year for after Yang, Mm -hmm. could he possibly be better here?
1: Yeah, I think he probably is. I think he is. I love him in after Yang. And I'm probably making a mistake here by focusing on the performance that's a little bit bigger. And this is. This one maybe just asks of him a little bit more in terms of showing us the comedic side, but also this really melancholy and mournful side. And it's a tough thing, or it would seem to me a tough thing to do, to play someone who people can rightfully say of a character is dull That's a word that comes up over and Mm -hmm. over again in this film. And you believe it and you understand it. But But you want to watch him. You want to watch him. There's nothing dull about the performance that Farrell is giving. And that's the trick of this here. So, again, I feel a little bit bad even saying that he's better here than he is in After Yang just because that's maybe a little bit more of a subtle performance. But it's not as if this movie and this performance is lacking in subtlety Either That's really the beauty of it. When he has to sell a moment comedically, he does, but he also delivers all of those more serious and poignant moments, and he doesn't ever do it in a way where it seems like he's trying to be too flashy with the character. I could see a lesser performer trying to do what Farrell is doing here and make him either some combination of really dim-witted and boring, or go the other way and just be plain obnoxious. Yeah, wacky. That's, that's not what his, his perig is at all. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was, and I'll say
0: sorry for that too, Colin. Uh, with all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild.
1: But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like... I just don't like you no more.
0: In a way, there's actually more range here than he gives in After Yang, which, again, we both find Mm -hmm. to be a beautiful performance, but you get a sense of deep sadness in this character from Farrell, and it's also of a piece with the comic bits that he's a part of. And it's not just the dialogue, the funny dialogue, which he makes sing, but there's subtlety in the comedy as well in his comic performance, because think of how many punchlines are given that He either polishes off if he delivers them with a little glance or a little look, or he responds to someone else's punchline with like a a double take of some sort that's more subtle comic acting that adds a couple of more laughs to the scene. I I keep thinking about our screening again, and it's the sort of movie where you're laughing at the conversation taking place, and then you kind of have to like chuckle out a laugh or two more when you see how Farrell in particular facially responds to what's just Mm -hmm. been happening. So yeah, it's an incredible performance. And, um, you know, I think, I think there are ways McDonough almost shows, the writerliness does start to seep in a little bit towards the end when this thing does shift. Overall, I think the tone controls is, is so much more solid than in three billboards. So I think that is a strength to the movie, but it gets really rough the last 20, 30 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And there's almost more tragedy here than I think it needs. Um but that's a small quibble I have for the movie. And again, Farrell plays all of those scenes just as perfectly. So he carries the movie to its end um, in a way that's just incredibly impressive and is by far one of my favorite performances of the year.
1: Yeah. I've seen a few people online say this is probably McDonough's best film of the four, all the three billboards haters like yourself, Josh get to enjoy him again. That does actually make me feel good. I have liked all of his previous films, but I'll say it probably is his best film. And based on those movies, based on a couple of the plays that I've read, I wouldn't say this is really a departure. They all have layers of absurdity and light and dark comedy, and they're about mortality and redemption and vengeance and violence or the threat of violence. And they're about friendship for the most part. I don't as you and listeners know, except the tonal nightmare argument about three billboards, but I get it. And I will say that Banshees is certainly a more intimate, controlled and compassionate tale than we've previously seen from McDonough. I wanted to throw this at you and see what your response was. And if you could help me decipher it a little bit, Charles Bermesco on Twitter, I saw him tweet this the other day. He said, the Banshees of Inisharan." One of those situations where I'm pretty sure I'm not sympathizing with the right guy. Just based on that, who do you think Charles thinks the movie wants us to sympathize with or most audience members are sympathizing with, and who do you think he sympathizes with? How do you interpret that?
0: I mean, I'm assuming he's assuming a choice between... Farrell's character and Gleason's character. I mean that's how I right. That's that's kind of the central tension of the whole film. And the film is told from Pedrick's point of view, Farrell's character's point of view. So um, yeah, I can only assume that's what he means. So then why I guess I didn't see it as a choice. Yeah. Um I saw both men as s- struggling with what friendship means on a small island, how to manage loneliness on a small island and ugh, I mean, this is where the the movie really I thought hit home hard in a genuine authentic way, uh, what it means to live with depression. And I see both characters as dealing with all three of those things. And so mm-hmm. to me, I, I though I understand how we're more attuned to one character's point of view, it never felt like a choice to me. So it's
1: really hard for me to answer. Yeah. And that's why I was throwing it at you because I was trying to make sense of it to some extent. He followed that tweet up in the thread by saying, what kind of person sees someone desperate for the tiniest crumb of compassion reduced to begging for the basic decency of acknowledgement at the expense of all dignity and continues the emotional withholding anyway? How can anyone be so cruel? So, again, going back to the first tweet, right guy suggests that the movie has a side. And then with that follow up, it seems clear that he's talking about Gleason's character. Yeah, that's what as be the my one assumption. Who's being being cruel. So he must be the one that Charles actually sympathizes with. But he's clearly on, he's clearly on Farrell's side. The cruel person's Gleason. So, yes. Yeah. So he's saying he's more on Farrell's side and he's making it sound like he thinks the movie wants us to be on Gleason's side. He's clearly talking about Gleason's character as the cruel one. So my sense is that that's the character he thinks the movie is siding with somehow and he's siding with, with Farrell. Whatever it is, my point is, I don't bring it up to criticize Charles. I bring it up actually to make the point that you already made for me, Josh, which is that I didn't see it as a choice either. And Banshee's dramatic resonance is a result of how deathly McDonough delivers his character's virtues and vices. What's hilarious and tragic is that both are so modest. Both the virtues and vices are so modest compared to the amount of anguish they cause. So that just surprised me when I read that this notion that there is a right way, maybe, and a wrong way to view it, or a certain expectation with the characters. I agree with you that Farrell is someone we spend more time with, and he does seem to be more of the aggrieved character. He's the, the poor soul who just wants his friend back. How are you not siding with him, even as the movie ultimately does make a case for Column? Brendan Gleeson's character and why he would want his distance from him. That's the that's the power of the film.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. It's it's incredibly nuanced in that way. And I guess you could say, you know, give it another 20 minutes and give um, Colm maybe three or four more scenes to balance it a little bit. But I wonder if you'd be able to, um, you know, again, the emotional identification and attachment to, Pedrick, that this movie manages. I wonder if you would lose some of that if you spent more energy in balancing um, The Ledger, even though I think the movie is successful, as I said, in balancing it and not making one a clear villain and one a clear victim at all.
1: I think there's definitely more we both could say about the Banshees, even a Sharon. I know I have a few more notes, but I also think it's a film we're probably both going to be talking more about as we get through the end of the year, fair to say? I...
0: We'll have to pick my funniest moment nominee from this movie. I'm still mulling it over. Maybe I'll share one that I know I probably won't, but in out of context, it may not work. But when Farrell comes into his house and just calls him out, you danced with your dog after after we've seen that. And what I love about it is it's Uh so funny, this accusation it's a punchline but again going back to ferrell's performance he layers it with real hurt it's it's not just that he's saying something funny but what he actually saw him doing and i think this is after colum has has you know said he didn't want to dance or something or spend time with them or something like that the betrayal is what we also feel the comedy and the betrayal both is going on in mm-hmm. in the performance right there
1: yeah i'll give you one of mine i don't know that it would be the contender for my favorite funny scene from the movie or not, but it's one that sticks with me, maybe because I was surprised the audience generally didn't laugh at it the way I was. And it could be because it comes pretty late in the film. And also Farrell is just reciting the line in voiceover, but he's reading a letter from his sister, Carrie Condon, who's very good in the film. Mm -hmm. We haven't mentioned Barry Kagan, who plays Dominic, who is also really good. All the performances are exactly what you would expect they would be in this film. But he says something to the effect of, I don't know anything about being ensconced because you know, I don't know what that means. I think the word yeah. Is ensconced. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he just so plainfully acknowledges that, you know, I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, That's what he that does. He means, says, you know, I have means. no idea. <laughs> The Banshees of Inisherin is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We are back to our top five movie bromances. Josh, two picks left. What's your number two? Well, you
0: question how I could have anything higher than Rio Bravo. And no, this movie is not a better film than Rio Bravo, but it bromancier by far. That's for sure. It's Beam and Raju. These are the friends in RRR. Now I've been feeling left out since this Tollywood action epic hit Netflix in May. I saw all the raves coming from pretty much everywhere. People weren't raving though so much as just expressing astonishment at the scope, at the audacity, the flat out action insanity on display across the film's three plus hours. And trust me, that is all there. I I don't think I've ever seen a tiger. Maybe it was a wolf. I don't know. This thing moves fast. But something like that being thrown at an adversary during a fight before. But that's in this movie. At the end of the day it's still a heartfelt bromance. RRR is set in 1920s India, which is under British rule. The main characters are Beam, a villager who's come to Delhi to rescue a young girl who has been kidnapped by the British governor, and Raju, an Indian who has pledged loyalty to the British Empire and serves in the colonialist security force. They're played by N.T. Rama, Rao Jr., and Ram Chiran Teja, respectively. So yes, these two are adversaries, but Part of this elaborate narrative is that they don't realize it at first. So they actually meet cute when they both notice a boy who gets trapped beneath this bridge when a fuel train explodes while crossing it. They swing through the air. First, they kind of look at each other and somehow acknowledge their dexterity and manliness just by a look. They know. They communicate. And so then they go ahead and swing through the air amidst these bursts of flames. They look like these burly trapeze artists. The whole sequence ends with an underwater, like walking along the bottom of the river, underwater high five. It's kind of like one of those Old Spice commercials on steroids. This thing is just insane. Now, probably the next 45 minutes of RRR our, our, our features this extended growing friendship and pretty much in a montage. It's, you know, includes even, as all good bromances do, I think, Adam, Beam doing squats with Raju on his shoulders. That's, you know, how they kind of uh, solidify their bond. If that's not enough, then we get this choreographed dance routine with the two when they crash the dance floor at a posh British party and they teach the colonialists some new moves. Not salsa, not flamenco, my brother. Do you know?
1: Desi Nutch? What's
0: Desi Now, of course, this bliss doesn't last once Beam and Raju learn of each other's identities. And I have to say, for those who haven't seen it yet, the movie actually becomes way more brutal than all the giddy enthusiasm for it would suggest. But the central relationship, it does remain crucial to the narrative, um, you know, how, if and how they might reconnect uh, all the way to the end quick note for chicago listeners the music box theater just announced that they're going to be screening RRR on saturday november 12 and director ss rajamuli will be in attendance for a q a so there's a chance to catch up with it on a big screen or
1: maybe see it again it sounds wild josh but do they sing my rifle my pony and me underwater yeah you just can't it's just air bubbles <laughs> I do really want to see this movie. Already on my list and now I know that it's a must before the end of the year. Bromancier, Josh called it. I think they should they should put that on the DVD. Bromancier than Rio Bravo. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's a word. <laughs> okay. I said there would be another western and there is from 1969. Yeah, it's obvious and I'm not going to overlook Butch and Sundance from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I had Pacino and De Niro. I'm going with two other all-time greats, Redford and Newman. And unlike Pacino and De Niro, we've got two characters who have genuine affection for each other. But the way that affection is expressed is, well, it's usually masked by witty one-liners and gunplay. In your mind, Josh, I wonder if, like me, you think that Redford and Newman appeared in at least three and maybe four or five movies together. Sure, They didn't, though. It was just two. It was just Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. But they are so memorable as a pair in those two films, and especially here, that they're indisputably one of the best screen duos ever. Top of mind for me, this film and these moments I'm going to call out after watching Ethan Hawke's great documentary about Newman and Joanne Woodward, The Last Movie Stars, I think it came out in July on HBO. If you haven't seen it, catch up with it. It's a case here, as I think about a couple moments in particular, Josh, as cliche as it is, you find yourself thinking, wow, they they don't make movies and movie stars like this anymore. I certainly said it when we revisited All the President's Men, and there were two clips that they show in the last movie stars that had me saying that to myself. One of them is when they're about to go off the cliff near the end of the film. The exact moment I love the most won't translate to audio, unfortunately, so bear with me, but everything else that's great about the scene will. The William Goldman dialogue and that antagonistic but playful dynamic between the two men. They're just gonna have to go back down the same way they come. Come on. Just one clear shot. That's all I Come want. Come on. Uh-uh. We got to. Stop. Get away from me. Why?
0: I want to fight them. They'll kill us. Maybe. You want to die? Do you?
1: All right. I'll jump first. No. Nope. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? Not I can't swim. <laughs>
0: are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you.
1: When we did A Sacred Cow of All the President's Men a few years ago, we actually devoted a lot of time to Redford's performance and that incredible scene in the newsroom where he gets Kenneth Dahlberg to admit he gave the money to stands and it goes all the way up to Nixon. The nonverbal acting and reacting. Well, what you miss in that long pause before Newman's laugh is a gesture that kills me every time. Redford admits, finally, he can't swim. Newman is just looking at him, and Redford gruffly pierces his lips together and nods his head down aggressively. It's basically a defiant shrug, as if he's saying, there it is. You happy? <laughs> you got me. I admitted it. And it it cracks me up, and it's partly, too, some great editing There in that George Roy Hill film where other than the very opening to that scene, when they crouch behind the boulder, the rest of it all plays out in a two shot where Newman is in the background and Redford's in the foreground. And at that exact moment where he shrugs just before it perfectly timed, it cuts, it cuts to Redford. So we see him do that aggressive shrug towards Newman. I love that bit. And I love earlier in the film the knife fight scene. The challenge from the hole-in-the-wall gang against Butch as their leader. When when Butch says kill him, and Sundance says, love to. And here's another gesture from Redford. The slow turn towards Harvey with those blue eyes and that big smile and the wave. These are not men who are going to fully admit their feelings for each other, but There is something deeper suggested by the way Redford and Tones love to. This idea that if Butch dies here, there's no way he's going to let that go. And I think the other kind of insight into male friendships that we get here is just that timing that they have, that ease with each other, the way they can read each other and be so in sync with each other that most of what they're trying to express can actually be unsaid, can be in gestures and reactions. That's just the comfort level they have with each other.
0: So glad this is on your list because as I was forming mine, it seemed like it seemed like the must-have, right? And, and then I'm getting more options and more choices. And I probably like their performances the most about the movie, um, but I'm not as big of a fan as you. So it did fall off my list, but I think in some ways a list like this would be fraudulent without it. So glad you're giving it some representation here. At number one, I'm going with Sam and Frodo from The Lord of the Rings. Now, of all the things to inspire a super cut video from The Lord of the Rings series— Who would have thought it would be the relationship of Hobbit heroes Sam and Frodo, played by Sean Astin and Elijah Wood? But yes, you can watch Frodo and Sam being an iconic duo for five minutes to get a five-minute recap of the depth and breadth of their pairing. And actually, this isn't a surprise. If you remember the tenderness that's given to them in J.R.R. Tolkien's novels, it's one of the hallmarks of Peter Jackson's adaptations that he made time for this. He didn't lose it in bringing all of the action and fantasy to the screen. He knew how important this was to the story. Now, even though Sam is something of an insistent tag-along on the journey, especially at the beginning, Frodo even tries to leave him behind at one point, it does eventually become clear that Frodo could not have completed his quest without his friend.
1: I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. What? I wonder if people will ever say... Let's hear about Frodo in the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was really courageous, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy. The most famousest of hobbits. And that's saying a lot. You've left out one of the chief characters. Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. Frodo wouldn't have got far without Sam. Mr. Frodo, you shouldn't make fun. I was being serious. So was I
0: A lot of time bromances they're played with the movie's tongue in its cheek, or at least the characters play it that way, almost apologizing for the relationship by joking about it. I think, what'd you say about Butch and Sundance? Witty one-liners and and gunplay, right? Can stand in for some other things. Um, And that definitely captures a realistic nature of a bromance. I think I leaned a little bit more towards sincere relationships on this list, Harold and Kumar aside, but I don't think anything is as flat-out sincere As this one, it's right there, even in how Sam and Frodo look into each other's eyes and talk to each other. Now, maybe I made this pick because Tolkien is in my mind. Thanks to Prime Video's Rings of Power series. Quick recap on that, Adam. Pretty disappointing. Kind of felt like eight episodes of packing to go on a trip. So I wouldn't recommend it, especially for you, but either way <laughs> brought to mind, Sam and Frodo again. Um, and so they're not only on my
1: list of romances, right, right here at the top. Wait. So we've gone from excessive walking to excessive packing. It's a lot of preparation, a lot of setup Yeah, a little bit of a reference there, obviously, to Jay and Silent Bob, a duo that some people probably think should be referenced on this list of bromances as well. My number one duo, my bromance here, is a relationship I spent a good deal of time on actually during our Barbara Stanwyck marathon, the film that concluded that marathon. Not to say that Barbara Stanwyck isn't doing incredible work as Phyllis Dietrichson in that movie, maybe the best femme fatale ever, but these two men hijack the conversation for me. Those men are Walter Neff and Barton Keyes from Double Indemnity. Whatever Fred McMurray's character has with Phyllis Dietrichson is just a means to a complex end, but his relationship with Keyes is at the core of the film and is a major part of that complex. end. it's as if for me, Josh, Walter's worth as a man, his potential to accomplish something great is determined by whether or not he can fool this brilliant man, this mentor who he so deeply respects in a twisted way. It's as though the entire crime is an expression of love for keys. And there are other ways that are not as extreme or dramatic that that love is expressed, every lighting of Keys's cigar, and he does say it once. He says, "I love you too," but it's a throwaway quip that follows an insult from Keys. So he doesn't really mean it then when he says it, except he absolutely means every bit of it. And that line is reprised at the end of the film.
0: You know why you couldn't figure this one, Keys? I tell you, because the guy you were looking for was too close right across the desk from you closer than that Walter I love you too
1: the framing device there a bookend to the movie and a bookend to my list started with super bad no sleeping bags this time just a body bag Josh do you see what I did there do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. that po- Wilder, podcasting brilliance, Adam. Do you think Wilder and Chandler would approve of my wordsmithing? Let's not get carried <laughs> away. It is a moment at the end of the film that I think we see in this noir context. Rightfully, we think of it in maybe a very cynical way. It's a good line. It's a great bit of dialogue that these two performers really nail. But the more I sit with the film, the more I'm actually moved by this exchange and keys reciprocation finally, when it's too late, when he says closer than that, Walter, that's, that's him obviously saying, I love you. And you almost don't even need the callback to the, I love you too, because we see it on Walter's face and we see it on Edward G. Robinson's face as Barton keys. And I like how it sneaks up on you. I mean, in, in retrospect, it all makes
0: sense, and you see the crumbs of that relationship. But in the moment, in those mm-hmm. exchanges, maybe it's because you're caught up in the noir plot, right? And the yep. the crime plot, and is he going to get away with it? Is he is he going to get nailed? Um, but when that happens, which is a very idiosyncratic move for a film noir to make, you don't feel like it's all that jarring. You know, you're like, oh. Uh, I do. I see that this has been their relationship all throughout. So, yeah, it's a it's a great touch and a pretty impressive climax
1: for a noir, and such an impressive film. We actually have at least two all timers here, Josh. One on your list, one on mine. And let's just say it, Rio Bravo. The only reason it didn't make my list is I had stashed it aside in the penalty box. I felt like maybe this is the movie I'd harped on enough over the years. I was relieved to see that you included on your list, even if it was only at number three. But I think we've got consensus here between myself, between you, and Sam, our producer. We're going to do something that I don't know that we've ever done. We're not only going to anoint a film into the Pantheon, we're going to do it with two films. We've got two here that are worthy. I hope the Pantheon can handle it. Not only is Double Indemnity going in as one of our all-time favorites here on Film Spotting, but so is Rio Bravo. And I'm guessing, Josh, there are a few thousand people out there right now going, wait a second, Rio Bravo wasn't already in the Pantheon? That was my reaction earlier today when Sam said it. Couldn't believe it. We are rectifying a wrong here on Film Spotting, putting both of these films in the Pantheon. Never to be mentioned on a Top 5 again.
0: Commit your final mortal remains to the bosom of the
1: Pacific Ocean, which you love so well. Good night, sweet prince. And with that, Double Indemnity and Rio Bravo go into the film spotting pantheon and we wrap up our top five bromances. Josh, do you have any other movies you want to squeeze in honorable mentions? I mean, this was tough. A lot of options. If
0: I had allowed myself two dumb smart comedies on my list, I would have gone with Talladega Nights. I know Stephen Koch on Twitter, he sent uh, a GIF suggesting this was the way to go. He definitely agrees. Shake and bake, baby. I mean, shake and bake. What more needs to be said? Pain and gain. I mean, come on. You know I'll take any chance to mention Michael Bay's masterpiece. You mentioned Edgar Wright. Uh, Adam. Yeah. We didn't go. Neither of us. Went, I know. With an Edgar Wright film, we are going to hear about it. My pick would have been, if I had to choose one Simon Pegg, Nick Frost pairing, it would probably be Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. That's where it it, you, you got to go. I saw a lot of support for Hot Fuzz, so... Yeah, um, and
1: The World's End as well, but Shaun of the Dead would be my pick.
0: Okay, good. Thought about Buzz and Woody, but, you know, they're toys. Fast and Furious, Dom and Brian. I mean, technically they're family, so I set that aside as well. Uh-huh. Not technically, but spiritually here uh-huh. are a couple listeners mentioned i agree with bottle rocket white men can't jump dumb and dumber and you referenced this one too how could you not consider i love you man
1: yeah you have to consider it even if nathaniel was saying it's not as good as super i'd agree with that it sounds like he still maybe has some appreciation for that film i definitely considered it how about our elaine may marathon mikey and Nikki, peter falk John Cassavetes in that film, a penalty box movie for me. But I know when this topic first came up, a lot of people had to assume I was going to put Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon from the trip movies in my top five. Obviously, tough to leave out. You mentioned Woody and Buzz, whether they're toys or not, from those Toy Story films, they do have to be considered. Mentioned last week as a bromance without using that word, Point Break, Bodie, Patrick (laughs) Swayze, and Johnny Utah, Keanu Reeves. You know, one that was really hard for me not to include, Josh, and I only didn't put it on the list because I'd already gone with a couple crime movies, but episode 536 of Film Spotting, you can hear our Sacred Cow review of this film and our top five films of 1992. That show is in volume two available now to our Film Spotting family members. Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, I absolutely think That You want to talk about central tensions, Mr. Orange and Mr. White, and their bromance is what that film is about. There are other Tarantino options as well, including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Pitt, and DiCaprio. I mentioned that I wasn't going to go with any mentor protégés, but I still think you could talk about Rushmore, Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman as a potential bromance, and I think you could say the same about Paul Thomas Anderson and The Master with Wolf Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. I said I was also leaving out groups of friends, The Deer Hunter. So hard to leave out Michael Cimino, and here is another De Niro pick, that great film from the 70s. Finally, you already said it, but I'm going to reiterate it. Almost put on Shaun of the Dead, though the whole Cornetto trilogy really are appropriate choices for this list. Those are our top five bromances. We'd love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That's our show, Josh.
0: If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at filmspotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. At filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll, which looks ahead to the release of sight and sound magazines once per decade. 100 Greatest Films of All Time list. The question we're asking, what film released between 2012 and 2022 should make the new Sight & Sound list? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive, which goes back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com
1: Out in wide release this weekend, Pray for the Devil, about a young nun who trains at an exorcism school. On digital, you can see Wendell and Wild, the new one from Henry Selleck, All Quiet on the Western Front, a new version of that, Josh a German adaptation of the World War I set novel. It's on Netflix. Our friend Mariah Gates called it a faithful and heart-wrenching adaptation that fully realizes the novel's trenchant anti-war themes. In limited release, you can see a movie we are strongly recommending, The Banshees of Inna Sharon, that is expanding, including here in Chicago, and expanding to more screens, a movie we both recommended very enthusiastically a couple shows ago, Todd Field's Tar. Next week, Some thoughts on Triangle of Sadness. We will talk about Wendell and Wilde, and we just might do our top five stop-motion sequences.
0: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dessault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
1: And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. you actually went spinosaurus yeah oh i could do spinosaurus for sure i i have no idea what a spinosaurus is so i'm I'm imagining it has a giant
0: spine yeah and if i'm you know like a fin if i'm remembering correctly i think it can swim too Mm, so it's got that going for it